uh, Leviticus chapter number 21. Uh, we're going to pick back up in verse 7. We did verse uh, 1 through uh, 6 before. We didn't really, one of those verses we'll get to again next week because we didn't really get into it. Uh, but we'll do Leviticus chapter 21, verse 7 through verse 9. There we go. I have a bookmark and I still can't get to where I'm trying to go. <clears throat> verse number 7. They shall not take a wife that is a whore or profane, neither shall they take a woman put away from her husband, for he is holy unto God. Thou shalt sanctify him therefore, for he offereth the bread of thy God, uh, he shall be holy unto thee, for I the Lord which sanctify you am holy. And the daughter of any priest, if she profane herself, uh, she profaneth her father, she shall be burnt with fire. All right, let us pray. Father, we pray, God, that you'd speak to us in this message, that you would just do something great and mighty in what's about to be said. I pray, God, that you'd help, Lord, to encourage each person here to see the importance of our homes and how we represent you. I pray, God, that you'd work in these things and that you do something truly amazing in speaking to each heart. Lord, we ask it in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when we come to this passage, again, you have to have that context to understand that I'm not trying to take Levitical law and apply it to you as a one-for-one one because you're not a Levitical priest. You are a royal priesthood, you are a chosen generation, but you're not a Levitical priest. You're not a tribe of Levi unless somebody here is hiding this big secret from me. They never told me about their heritage. None of you are of the tribe of Levi. You're not Levitical priest. Uh, however, you are a priest serving under Jesus Christ who is the high priest of the order of Melchizedek. Uh, and with him as our high priest, we are put as representatives of God. As we said before, when God promised to Israel that they would be a nation of kings and priests, what he was promising them, when he said you'll be a nation of priests, is he was saying that if they would obey him, because the Levites were his priests whether they obeyed him or not, Israel were being told you will be priests, meaning you'll be representatives of me. You'll be my ambassadors to the world if you obey me. So for Israel, it was conditional, and you see that because they made promises. You know, we talked about in our devotions this week where he put them on the two mountains, and one was the mountain of blessing, and the other was the mountain of cursing. Uh, and this is what happens if you disobey. This is what happens if you obey. And so Israel had a lot of conditional promises wherein God would do something for them if they followed him. Uh, now, there were many unconditional promises to Israel as well, but the promise to be his representatives, that they as a nation could represent him, well, that was very conditional. That was on the condition that they kept the commandments, they kept their covenant they made with him, and they obeyed him. At that point, they would be able to be a light to the world, and they would be a light to the Gentiles, and they would be able uh, to represent him amongst all people, which is what he wanted them to do. That's what the laws and stuff were trying to teach them how to do. The difference between them and the Levites is the Levites were God's people he had separated out of even Israel so that it was not conditional. They were his portion of Israel. He said, this group belongs to me. We talked about this last week, that they're mine, uh, and because they're holy unto me, because they're mine, you know, they're, they're special because they're gods, uh, then he said also of them that he's going to call out of them his priest. So it was, it was not a conditional thing. He picked the people from Levi. And that's why the, the fact that it's not conditional is why you have people like Hophni and Phinehas who are 
evil. Like they represent Christ in the worst possible ways, and yet God still lets them continue in that position for a very long time. Is because that was their position they were born into, that they were going to be part of this ministry and this family, and it was important for them to understand. That's why it was so important that Eli raised his family well. That's why it was so important that he trained his sons to serve God instead of letting them get into all the evil things they did. Is because they represented God whether they liked it or not. The reason why I'm showing you that is because when he calls you priest, you're in the same boat. You represent God whether you like it or not. If you're saved, if you're not saved, then you don't represent anybody. You represent yourself. You can represent Belgium. You can represent whatever country you like. It doesn't matter. But if you're saved today, you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you represent God whether you like it or not. Whether you actually are living a Christian life, people are going to refer to you as a Christian. You bear His name upon you. And because you bear His name, everything you do is done in His name, whether you want it to be done that way or not. So when you commit a sin, people look at that as Christ let you do that. One of his ambassadors behaved that way. I mean, you think about this. We, we don't mean to be this way. It's actually one of the worst parts of our nature as people. Uh, if I see somebody, I have to be really careful. I'm not going to use Poland as an example because uh, I don't know if you know this, but in America, they make a lot of jokes about Polish people. So I'm just not gonna, we're not going to go there. Uh, but uh, I'll pick on Serbians because Bronislav's leaving. And if he gets mad at me, he'll, he'll, he has till next month to get over it uh, or cancel his ticket one. Uh, but if I was, let's say, to, this is my perspective of what a Serbian is. Now, I've been there, so my perspective's changed now. But for many years of my life, this is the only Serbian I knew. This is the only person who could represent that country to me. And whether he did good or bad, no matter what he did, that was my perspective of, okay, Serbians are like this. Now, I'm smart enough to know that not all Serbians are going to be just like him. But it doesn't, you can't help it. It's going to affect your opinion some. It's going to make you, I mean, I know two people in the entire world from Cameroon, all the people from the entire country, I know two. Uh, and so that's my whole foundation I have. From Tanzania, I know one. Uh, so that's my whole foundation I have to work up from that country. From Belgium, you're good. I, I see your country every day. You don't have to worry. Uh, I have my own opinions based off of a large poll of people to, to pull from. Philippines, I know a lot of you, so you don't have to worry either. Uh, Romanians, I know too much about them. Uh, but when it comes to certain countries, I don't know many people from there. And the people who are from there, you represent it, even if you don't really mean to, you affect my opinion of that country. It's normal. It's not always good. Sometimes, to be honest, sometimes it becomes racist in some ways. But in general, it's normal that it's like that. It's normal that if you know five Filipinos and they all act the same, you assume that people from the Philippines act that way. Uh, it's normal that if you know three people from Belgium and they all act one way, oh, that's just how people from Belgium are. Uh, it's normal that you do that because those people are carrying with them certain representation, whether they like it or not. And again, sometimes it's wrong, sometimes it's right. But you as a Christian have the same thing. You claim to belong to Christ. When you tell people, I'm a Christian, I'm saved, I go to church, any of these kind of things. When you say, I go to this church, you represent our church. And the way you act out in the public has an effect of what people think of the church. I do as well. I mean, it's not people think because I'm the pastor that somehow I, I bear an extra special responsibility for representing this church. But people's opinion of this church is going to be just as bad as if you do something as it will be if I do something, to be honest, uh, because you represent the church. Now, people look at me as a leader and maybe people put expectations extra on me. But in general, we represent this church because I'm not the church. We are. Uh, we represent it. And people look at you and they see what you do and it affects their opinion of the church as well. They're not going to 
I could live good. Let me put it. What I'm trying to say is this. I could do good 365 days of the year and you do bad and you're going to undo all of that. Same thing. You could do good 365 days of the year. I do bad one time and it's going to undo all that good you did because we both represent the church, whether you like it or not. We both represent this and people think the same. Same thing for Christians. How many people do you know who say bad stuff about church because they know one Christian who hurt their feelings or did something wrong to them and ignore the other hundred Christians they know who have never hurt them and only done good to them? It's, you have that. You represent Christ whether you like it or not. You carry that with you. And so when he talks about you being a royal priesthood, that's what he's talking about. Is you are priests who represent Christ whether you like it or not. And because of that, you do have to consider it. Last week we saw our holiness, the way that we're sanctified unto God and we belong uniquely to Him should first be the place we reflect that. And that we belong first and foremost to Christ. I'm not, I'm not worried about being an American. I'm not worried about being a Belgian. I'm not worried about being whatever. It's not, I'm not going to be identified by my education level or any of this kind of stuff. I'm first and foremost a Christian. That's what I am. And that's the first place we should represent Christ is in actually choosing to embrace that and be holy unto Him, to be His, His unique and special people. But the next place in this verse, if you're paying attention, is in our homes. He first starts with the laws telling them, don't defile yourself. Your life is worth more than getting caught up in the things of this world. And he's talking about precious things like the, the death of a family member. And he's saying you shouldn't be defiled for the things of this world. You should come out and be separate from among them. Uh, you know, Touch not the unclean thing, all that kind of stuff, because you belong to God. So that's the first way we're supposed to represent him. The second way he's talking about homes, and what he says here sounds rough. I mean, it, it, if you pay attention to the language of what we just read, it sounds pretty rough what he's talking about. But the point he's making is tremendous. I said, I'm not going to try to make a one-to-one -one comparison to you because you are not a Levitical priest. The same way when we read about you know cutting the corners of the beards and all that stuff, I'll tell you when we get to that next week why that mattered, but I'm not going to try to apply that to you as a one-to-one -one law that this is exactly what God expects from you. The principle of why that mattered is what matters to you. But when it comes to our homes, he gives two aspects of which the home should represent Christ. The marriage and then the children. You see that. I mean, that's what he talks about here. The laws he's giving to these priests are about who you're going to marry and considering how who you're going to marry is going to impact your children. That's what he's talking about in the verses we just read. And the reason why he says it matters so much is he says because your children are supposed to represent Him too. It's not just that the parents are supposed to represent. Your children are supposed to represent. If God's given me a family, He's given me a wife, He's given me four children, and what I have is that me and my wife obviously very much represent Christ right now. We're saved, we're in the ministry, we're actively involved in representing Christ. We're not just doing it, we're choosing to get involved and in making our life to represent Him. But at the same time, all four of those children are going to reflect Christ. Because whether I raise them for Christ or not, it's going to have an impact on people's view of Christ. Because if I go to church for the rest of my life, and I serve God for the rest of my life, but my four children get out of church and have nothing for God, it's going to have an impact and a testimony against the cause of Christ when people see that. My children are going to represent Him even if they're not Christians, even if they're not saved. They're going to have some impact on the cause of Christ and how it's represented. And that's the point he's making to these priests is I'm actually getting, I'm running to the end of the message. We'll come back and build it up and get back, come back there again. 
But the end of what we just read, those verses, when he's talking about that the daughter who goes and plays the harlot, uh, and I'll say a nicer word for the sake of the children, but the daughter who goes and plays the harlot, he says that you have to understand it's a big deal when she does that because her dad's a priest and she represents. She, she may not, she's not a priest. She's never going to go in there. She's never going to offer a sacrifice. But her family was supposed to be the family of the priest, and her family are supposed to represent this. Now, with them, there's a little extra layer in there, and I want you to get this because it's an important layer, what he's talking about. If she's part of that lineage and part of that family, then her children can still come up and be part of it. You know, her son might be a priest. Uh, her grandson might be a priest. You know, there, there's still possibility for more priests to be produced through this line, so it matters what she's doing. Her life matters because it's supposed to be about more than her. It's about the fact that she's supposed to be also participating in raising up a generation after her who can represent God and serve God amongst the people. That's why he was so careful to protect those Levites because the priests come out of the Levites. I want you to be clear about something. The Levites, just because you're a Levite doesn't make you a priest. That's, I've heard some people say that quite a bit lately, but being a Levite doesn't make you a priest. But to be a priest, you've got to be a Levite. Be a priest, you got to come out of this family. And if this family is not preserved, if it's not sanctified and holy unto God, if it's not set aside for Him, and they don't take care of these things that God's ordained for them, then one day there's not going to be any more priests. That's why you see some families being broken. You see the family line with Eli being broken with his sons and Samuel coming in. is because it, it mattered. It mattered that they lived this life that the next generation is being pointed to God. And the reason I'm going straight to this is because when you talk about why it matters who you marry, and thankfully today I have a good number of people who really need to hear this, even if you're already engaged, even if you already know who you're going to marry. The reason why it matters, because first and foremost, this is the person you're going to spend the rest of your life with. Second of all, this is the person who's going to help you in representing Christ for the rest of your life. And third of all, this is the person who's going to help you bring children into this world who are going to help you represent Christ. Uh, I mean, you understand that. One of the greatest tragedies when somebody marries an unbeliever and why God forbids a Christian to marry an unbeliever is because of the fact that that unbeliever has just as much influence over your children as you do. Uh, and when you marry them, they're going to be pointing your children away from Christ just as hard as you're pointing them to Christ. Whether they intend to do it or not, even if, they're, even if they have no issue with God, like they don't hate God, they're not against Him, they just, well, I'm Catholic. I don't really, you know, I, I, go to, I go to Mass from time to time and I do these certain things. You know, it can be somebody who's religious, but if they don't know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, they're going to be working just as hard, even if they don't mean to, to turn your children away from salvation in Jesus Christ as you're trying to get them there. And many times they'll work harder because you're going to get tired, you're going to get wore out. And for them, they're not fighting. They're just doing what's natural and easy. You're actually putting effort. And so you're going to get wore out long before they do. Uh, I mean, all they have to do is just sit there and not move a finger, and they're already in a great opposition against you because their opinion was enough, whereas you, on the other hand, have to work to do something. Uh, and so you're going to wear out long before they will, and those children are going to be pointing away from Christ double whatever you're pointing them towards Christ. That's one of the reasons God talks about this and forbids the marrying of an unbeliever, even someone who, again, is religious or a believer in another religion. Why God is so strong on this is because you can marry someone who tells you, oh, I believe, uh, I believe that there's a God. Okay, but which God? 
Because if they believe Allah is God, well, the values they're going to be teaching your children are not the values that you hold as a Christian. And he's certainly not going to be telling your son or your daughter or so forth, you need to put your faith in Jesus Christ to go to heaven uh, because they don't believe that God, that Jesus is God. Or maybe they're Jehovah's Witness. Maybe they're Mormon. Maybe they're Catholic. My point is, if they don't believe the truth that salvation is by Jesus Christ and Him alone, then you're going to be fighting a battle in your own home day in and day out every day trying to make sure that that child receives Jesus Christ and the enemy is the person who's supposed to be helping you. Your number one enemy was supposed to be your best friend in the battle. So it matters. It matters completely who you marry. It matters for your own sake because how are you going to represent Christ when two become one? When you get married, two become one flesh. And when one half of your flesh is adamantly against Christ, they're not saved. They don't know Christ. They don't represent Him in any way. And you're over here trying. How are you going to represent Christ when half of who you are as a person doesn't represent Him? When half of who you are as a person doesn't even know Him? That's why I've explained it like this before. You as a person are made up of a body, a soul, and a spirit. You have three parts of who you are. And you can connect with anybody physically or emotionally. That's the soul and the, the, the flesh, the body. Anybody can connect with somebody physically or emotionally. Uh, it's just that's easy to do. It doesn't take anything special to be able to do that. But spiritually, well, you can't do that if you're, not if you're not alive spiritually. So if you're saved, your spirit is alive because Christ has quickened it. He's made it alive. You were dead in trespasses and sins, and He made that spirit alive inside of you. But... If you're not saved, you don't have that. Your spirit is dead. It's there, but it's dead. So what happens is you go into a relationship where you need to be able to connect with somebody, body, soul, and spirit. You need to connect on every level. It's not enough to just have a physical relationship. It's not enough to have just an emotional relationship. You need body, soul, and spirit to have a full and healthy relationship. How are you going to have a full and healthy relationship with somebody who one-third of who they are as a person is dead? I mean, you put that in other terms. Let me put it like this. You, if you were to try to have a physical relationship with someone who's literally dead, their body is dead, there's, there's a term for that. And I'm not going to get into it for the sake of children, but it's something disgusting and it's forbidden in the Bible and it's a sin and it's a crime in most places in the world because you can't have a physical relationship with someone who's dead. It's just you can't do that. If it were possible for someone to be emotionally dead, in this case, it would be brain dead. You're talking about somebody who's comatose and brain dead and they cannot communicate or respond in this relationship and you try to perform an emotional relationship with that person, you know what that, that is? It's psychosis. It's you convincing yourself that this rock over here loves you uh, because you really love it. It's you taking something that doesn't have the capacity to love and convincing yourself that it loves you. And I know it's hard when we say that about a person, but that's why the example in this would be someone who's literally brain dead. Like their brain does not function. Their body's still alive. The heart is still beating. The blood is still flowing. But that brain is just not working. And you sitting there day in and day out talking, telling your thoughts and your feelings and connecting on a deep and emotional level with someone who has no deep and emotional level. They cannot connect with you. They cannot love you. You understand what I, how I'm showing you? This would be insanity. If somebody says, well, I know that the body's dead, but we just have a deep physical connection. It's, it's a sin, it's vile, it's gross. Uh, so you look at someone who's brain dead, and I know that they, that they can't understand what I'm saying, and they can't feel what I'm feeling, but we just have a deep, it's a deep emotional connection that you can't understand. No, you're crazy, and you convinced yourself that someone who's essentially an inanimate object at this point feels for you the way you feel for them. You see where I'm going with that. 
when you as a saved person go to someone who has not accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior and say, we're going to connect and we're going to connect physically, you can do that. It's not a problem. You both have bodies. Both of those bodies are alive. Uh, and you can do that. You're going to connect with them emotionally. Okay, that's fine. You both have emotion. You have a soul. Your souls can connect. You can be soulmates and you can connect in that way. But your spirit trying to connect with their spirit would just be like your body trying to connect with a dead body or your emotions trying to connect with somebody who's brain dead. You cannot do it. It's not possible because their spirit is dead. The only hope you'll ever have of connecting with that person is if they come to accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And God's telling you, you need to value your life and the fact that you represent him too much to enter into a relationship where I'm going to gamble and hope that one day this person's going to accept Christ. That's the point he's making with them. Like if I can really just simplify what he's saying in this passage, there's a lot of verses we can go into and a lot of interesting things God says about these subjects. But if I can just get straight to the point, the point God is making is that you represent him. Your home represents him. Your life is far too valuable for you to run after someone because you connected emotionally, you connected physically, you connected whatever, who you cannot have that spiritual connection because they are spiritually dead. Just because there's a chance that one day I might win that person to Christ, God forbids it and says that you're not to marry an unbeliever. It's forbidden by God. It is a sin in the eyes of God to do that. Now, I know many people, there's people sitting in this room right now who have done that. And there's both sides of that spectrum. There's, I'm not going to make anybody cry or pick on anybody, but there's at least one person in this room who I know that there's a sorrow in their heart because they're not going to have that, that person who they spent their life learning to love with them because that person never accepted Christ. The other one has, thankfully, her husband here with her, and he's accepted Christ. He's, he's an okay guy. She, she likes him. But my point is this, that you, when you enter into that, you're saying that I know I represent Christ, but my physical connection to this person means more to me. I know I represent Christ, but my emotional connection to this person means more to me. That's why God forbids it, because you represent him. And the place where you connect with him primarily is in your spirit. That's where you connect with God. That's how you pray is in your spirit. That's how you communicate with him. The most important relationship in your life is your relationship between you and Jesus Christ. And you can't share that with the person you're going to share your life with? How could you enter into that? How can you even go into a relationship like that? The answer is always, well, you know, I just connect with them very emotionally. They just get me. They get me like nobody else does. That's an emotional connection. And you know what? In, anybody can form that if you give them a chance. Uh, it's, it's not something that's as unique as you probably think it is. You just maybe haven't experienced that with somebody else yet. You can have best friends who get you. You don't have to marry everybody who gets you and you get along with. Uh, I mean, there's plenty of people who I get them and they get me, probably less who get me, but there's plenty of people who, you know, we get along and we have a connection as friendship. I just mean I have to marry all of them. Uh, I'm thankful me and my wife have a, a good emotional connection, but I'll be honest with you, the emotional connection we have is not as important as the spiritual connection we have. For us to be able to have a healthy marriage and a healthy life, if my first most important relationship I have in this entire world is Jesus Christ, and my next is my wife, because she does come before the children if you pay attention to your Bible. If my next is my wife, then how can I have a healthy relationship with her if we don't first and foremost have a healthy relationship to God? Because that's number one, this is number two. So if our relationship is one that's going to hurt the number one relationship, it's not going to be healthy. It's going to wind up being an abusive relationship in some way. So God is saying to the priest, the reason why he tells him, because he gives them a list, and this is what I want to get into. He gives them a list of women they're not allowed to marry, and most of the women on that list, there's no law against it. 
Like if they were not a priest, they could have married these women. It would be no problem. Uh, and some of them it depended on the circumstances. So let me show you that. I want to show you uh, verse number seventeen. Verse number seven. Uh, they shall not take a wife that is a whore. Uh, you know what that means. Or profane. That would be one who does the same thing, but not. She's not getting paid. Uh, if I can be polite as possible and say what I'm trying to say. Uh, neither shall they take a woman put away from her husband. That's a divorcee. Uh, for he is holy unto the Lord. And I feel like I've missed here because I know somewhere I believe it mentions widow, but uh, maybe that's in the later verse where he brings it up again, like verse 13 uh, and 14. Uh, verse 13 says, And he shall take a wife in her virginity, uh, and a widow or a divorced woman or a profane or an harlot, these shall he not take, but uh, he shall take a wife of his own, uh, of his own people uh, to wife. Now, again, you have to be careful because some of that later laws concerning the high priest, but the principle we're getting is still there because I'm not trying to take Levitical law and apply it to you one for one. Because for one, biblically speaking, if I try to get up here and say, oh, you're a priest, you represent Christ, you shouldn't marry someone who's a widow, I would be, I would be going against the Bible. The Bible completely disagrees with that. In fact, you'll find verses where God encourages young widows to get married. Uh, he says, if you're older, you can dedicate the rest of your life to God. You don't need to worry about getting married if you're not going to burn in lust. Uh, but if you're younger, he encourages a widow to get married because he says, otherwise, you're going to struggle for the rest of your life because of lust and because of other things that younger women will struggle with because you're still young enough to struggle with all of that. Uh, and so if I was to get take this verse where he tells the priest, I don't want you to marry a widow. I don't want you to marry a divorcee. I don't want you to marry someone who has been a harlot or someone who does the same things. Uh, but you know, again, for free. Uh, if he, if I was to give you verses that say biblically you're forbidden to marry that person, I would be wrong. Now, I can take you to Corinthians where he's talking about not joining your body together with a harlot because he's telling you to consider that you represent Christ. and You don't want a wife who's going to be dishonoring God and, and you know, you're joining her with you and you're representing Christ, so now she's representing Christ. That's, that's an issue that does matter, but I'm not even really going to get into that much right now. Because the thing I want you to notice is what he's asking of the priests is above the law. Like every other Jew, this was not a problem. For everybody else, it didn't matter. Like if you were a Jew, you could marry a woman uh, who was a widow because it, many times it was required. Like if it was the, the wife of your brother and he didn't have children, you had to raise up an heir to him and all that kind of stuff. There were laws that required other Jews to do that kind of thing. But biblically speaking, like the Bible is very clear. There's two different passages where God takes and pauses and says directly to you that when somebody's spouse dies, they're free to remarry. So when he's talking about not marrying a widow, you understand it's not really the moral issue that some of the other things that we'll talk about are. That's, it's not like that. When he talks about marrying someone who's divorced, you understand that there are occasions in the Bible where someone could be divorced and remarry, and it's not, for, it's not adultery. There's only one exception given, but it does exist. Uh, and so you understand that not everybody who wanted to marry a divorced person would have been wrong biblically uh, according to the law. But for whatever reason, God's saying, and, and if we're talking about legally, I mean, legally speaking, someone who played the harlot or someone who is the harlot, either one, uh, they can clean their life up and then get right. And there's no Bible law against marrying somebody like that. But God is looking at them and he's saying, I want you to marry a woman who is a virgin. You understand, you know what literally the word virgin means? I don't have to explain that to you. But here's something I want you to make sure you understand about the Bible. God uses the word virgin to describe any woman who's not married because she's supposed to be a virgin. If she's not, she's that other word that you don't want me to say. Uh, the other two about profane and harlot. Uh, 
God, God really, he's classifying a woman who's not married as either you've saved yourself for marriage or you gave it away for free and didn't even make any profit off of it, so you're the profane one, or you charged for it and you're the other one. Uh, and I'm not going to get into that today because I'm not going to focus in and beat people with that right now. But you understand that if you're going by God's definitions of what you're supposed to be before marriage, fornication means any sexual act that takes place before marriage or outside of marriage. So adultery would be fornication. I'm not, again, for children getting too deep into this stuff, but any sexual act where it's not a husband and wife coming together, just the two of them, it's fornication. So if you're not married or if you're not married to the person you're with, either way is fornication. And that means that anything happening before marriage in the eyes of God is sin. And that's why he says a woman who uh, is not a virgin when she gets married, a man who's not a virgin when he gets married, well, there's another word for him, and it's not a very nice word. Uh, and we may not like that. You don't have to like it. You just have to accept that that's the way God defines it, and that's what he says. Uh, God's very strong about that, and he doesn't give room to play with that. Anybody who's giving it away before you get married, the word he uses, maybe kids can cover their ears. I'll use the simplified version that he calls my heart. Uh, or profane. You're fine. I didn't actually say it. You're okay. Somebody actually was listening. <laughs> Very serious. So now I know I need to be even more careful what I say. Uh, but the point is, when you look at this, because even the children have to understand this, God expects people to keep themselves pure until they're married. God makes that very clear. And so it would not be a sin for you to marry someone who's not pure. I'm, like I said, I'm using the carefulest words I can because there are children in this service. Normally I would preach something like this when there's not so many children, but it's a series and it's in the Bible. Uh, and so God tells us to keep yourself pure. It is what he expects of you. Now, would it be a sin for someone who's not pure to get married? No. That person can clean up their life. They can get right. They can repent of whatever they've done and they can marry. But God told the priests, if they've already done that kind of stuff, don't marry them. You only marry a woman who has never been with another man who saved herself pure and sacred for marriage. That's the kind of woman you marry. When you think about it, he's asking the priest to go above the law. The law does not require that. The law for the priest requires that. He's saying, if you're going to represent me, you have to have a higher standard for your family than what's actually required. And like I say, today... It, today, if I try to put the exact same thing, that's why I'm saying you're not a Levitical priest. I'm not taking Levitical law and applying it to you one for one. Because if I tried to take that standard and say you represent God, so you can't marry this, 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 I would be wrong. I would be a sinner if I get up here and tell you that. I'd be a liar, uh, and you should condemn if I got up and said that today. Because it would not be right if I told you you can't marry a woman because, oh, each of you men, you represent Christ, so you can't marry a woman unless she's never been married and she's never been with a man. That would be unbiblical for me to say that. But the principle... That you need to have the highest possible standard you can put for who you're going to marry and what your home is going to be, that doesn't change for nobody. That rule stays fixed. It doesn't matter whether you're a Levitical priest. It doesn't matter if you're following after the order of Melchizedek. It doesn't matter uh, if you're one of Israel who could have been a priest and could have represented God. The principle that you need to make sure you have the highest standard of purity within your home. You have the highest standard of purity in your relationship. That you make sure you save the things that God tells you to save and you protect the things that God tells you to protect because your family is too precious and too important for Him. Your life is too much and you, the fact that you represent Him is too important. That does not change. Because I can give you, like I can take you through the Bible and show you that God's very clear that His diet has every right to marry. God's not against that. He was just against the Levitical priests doing that because he wanted them to put the highest level of purity possible on their families. So he asked them to do something the law never asked of them before. 
He asked him to take a standard higher than what everybody else took. So you want to know, like, why I have standards for my family that I don't judge you when you don't keep them? Now, sometimes my kids will come and they might fuss at you and say, why do you do this? Why do you do that? It's because they're children and they don't understand that not everybody has to do what they do. Uh, but what you have to understand is the reason why I have the highest standard I can think of to put on my family. Why I'm always, whatever we do, I look at the Word of God, I learn from the Word of God, and I put the highest standard possible for purity on my home is because I represent Christ. And I don't always represent him good. Sometimes I fail in those standards. Sometimes there's plenty of things in my life that I hope uh, never have to represent the cause of Christ because if I do, I'm going to be a hurt to him and to his cause. But in general, I try to make sure my life represents my Savior. And that means that there's certain songs we don't listen to in our home. There's certain cartoons my kids don't watch. There's certain ways we don't dress. There's certain places we don't go. There's things we don't drink. There's things we don't do. All of that is applied upon my home because while this law may not apply to me, the principle that I need to keep my home as pure as possible for the cause of Christ, it does apply to me. It applies to every one of you because you represent the Lord Jesus Christ. And you need to realize that your body is not your own. Your home is not your own. Your life is not your own. You represent Him. So who you marry should reflect that. How you raise your children, it should reflect that. That's what these laws for these priests are about, is your home is supposed to represent the Lord Jesus Christ. So let me throw out some verses for you just in case you don't know about these. Romans 7, 2 through 3 explains to you. So if you want to see one of the passages, just one of them, there's more, wherein God explains that someone whose spouse died is free to remarry. That's Romans 7, uh, 2 through 3 is one of the clearest, straightest passages about that. It says as long as a woman's husband lives, she's bound to him by the law. But as soon as he's dead, she's no longer bound to him by law. She's free to remarry. So it's straightforward as you can get. Like I, I know people who don't believe that, but it's because they don't believe the Bible. Because the Bible is very clear about that. Like I actually put it out as a question one time for the Q&As. And I put the question of under what condition is someone allowed to remarry when they're I think I even said divorce. And I had a few pastors feel like they had to clarify for me uh, that I was wrong when I said, I believe it's in the cause of fornication because I didn't include the death of a spouse because for one, that's not divorce. That's death. It's entirely different. You didn't break the contract. They died. And that was the end of the contract because it's till death do us part. Uh, and for two, I didn't know anybody was dumb enough that they, I had to explain that to them. I'm not trying to pick on my pastor friends who brought it up, but I just didn't realize that there was people who are dumb enough that when the Bible says multiple passages, the exact same thing, that a woman is free to remarry if her husband dies or a man's free to remarry if his wife dies, that you have to actually beat them over the head and explain it to somebody. I didn't realize that was Q&A worthy material. I thought that was given. Now, when it comes to divorce and remarriage, that's a lot more complicated. When it comes to that, I personally, you can disagree with me on this. You're welcome to. I think you're going to find as we talk about it more that you'll have a really hard time disagreeing with me and believing the Bible. But I know plenty of great pastors and preachers who disagree with me on this, but it's because they learned something in a Bible college and they refuse to listen to what I'm showing them in the Bible because, you know, I learned this in Bible college and it's too precious for me to let it go. <clears throat> but Matthew 19 and verse number nine, I'm going to show you the condition where legally speaking, someone who was divorced could remarry. Uh, and you have to pay attention to the wording here to see what God says. Because God says any other condition, uh, it would be adultery. It would be you know, fornication for that person to do that. But Matthew 19, Jesus gives his definition for marriage. He gives his clear, plain definition that God designed marriage first and foremost to be a man and a wife with the intention that there is no end to this contract except for death. Just till death do us part. But like God says from the beginning, that's the way it was designed. 
However, in the law of Moses, God made an exception, and Jesus still mentions and honors that exception in Matthew 19. Matthew 19 and verse number 9. And I say unto you, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her, which is put away, doth commit adultery. Now, Jesus is not quoting that as if, yeah, that was a law that Moses just made up and he stuck it in there in your Bible and God forgot to have the Holy Spirit take that out. He's quoting that to you that the reason why God had Moses put that in the law is he said because of the hardness of the heart. And he doesn't get specific as to whose heart he's talking about. This is the verses before where I started reading. He could be talking about the heart of the person who was cheated on that they just can't forgive. It's too hard and I can't forgive that person. You could be talking about the person who's in sin and they refuse to turn and they're going to continue to, to go out into fornication and adultery and all these kind of things. But he said because sometimes human hearts are just too hard. Some people won't turn from sin. Some people won't uh, quit you know, cheating the other one. Some people can't forgive. Whatever you want to apply that to, I think biblically you could. He says because the heart is too hard when somebody can't move forward because of fornication, which again covers adultery. Uh, it also covers that, uh, let's say, during your engagement, before you're legally married, uh, which would not be adultery, you find out that person cheated you, that's fornication. It's not adultery. But God says if your heart's so hard because they did that to you before you got married, He also is going to understand that. That's why fornication is used. Also, fornication is used because of the fact that it requires an actual physical act to have taken place, and adultery can be emotional. Adultery is a, a much more broad term. Uh, it can be emotional. It can be. It, it doesn't have to be physical. Whereas fornication is physical by definition. So God picked the proper term for what he means. He means you can't just get upset because they talked to somebody and you didn't like that. Uh, but if once you're engaged in this relationship and that person has cheated you uh, physically with another person, then God says that's the only place. Now, if you know about it and 10 years later you say, it's just too much for me, you're probably lying to yourself. But if when you first come to this person and you first find out about what happened, you've given a little time and you just can't move on, you can't fix it, whatever, the, the problem is just too much, the hearts are too hard, that's what he's talking about in this verse. And he says that's the exception. It's the only exception God ever gave to the rule. He said any other time where somebody got divorced and they remarried, that person is living in fornication for the rest of their life. They're living in adultery for the rest of their life. Uh, the person who, now it'd be better to stay in that than to divorce, so don't get the wrong idea, but you are doing something that God told you not to do when you, when you marry somebody who's been divorced for any other reason. But when somebody has been divorced because of this, because of this one thing of fornication, God says, that's the only place where I, I understand your hearts. I understand why some things are just too hard to forgive. And I make the exception in this one place where you can do it and it's not going to be adultery. That's what that verse is saying. Otherwise, you have to explain what he means by accept it be for the cause of fornication. Because everybody who disagrees with what I just said to you, they disagree because they skip the accept it be for the cause of fornication because they don't want to answer what that means. And they say, well, in any cause that you get, somebody gets divorced and remarried, it's adultery. So they'll say any cause. But he said there's an exception. Accept it be means there's an exception. Otherwise, Jesus didn't know what he was talking about. And he didn't know how to speak or he was a liar. So what, what is it? You know, we have to take him at his word. So my point is there is legally for sure anybody who's a widow could have married. If it's divorced, I just showed you, there, not everybody could, but there is times where it would have been fine. Like legally it would be normal that somebody who's divorced could have been remarried in that case. When it comes to what 
God explains about people who are divorcees and widows and all that stuff. I'm not going to get into 1 Corinthians 7. I had planned to get into it deep, but I went off in some other stuff. But 1 Corinthians 7 is a passage that often gets abused. And people take 1 Corinthians 7 and they take where Paul says that those who are unmarried and those who are widows, that I would, that they would stay even as I am. And they use it to contradict literally the entire rest of the Bible and even the context of the passage itself. Because when Paul's talking to the unmarried and widows, if you pay attention to the context, he's talking to the divorcees uh, and the widows, the people who lost their spouse to death. And he's saying to both of them, if you're asking me what's best for you, it's to stay the way you are. You're best, better off to just devote the rest of your life to God and not worry about running into another relationship. What people do, though, is they take that verse and say, oh, if you're not married, God doesn't want you to get married. But that's not at all. The last half of the chapter is dedicated to talking to young people who've never been married, who are still virgins, all that stuff. And he's telling them that what you need to do is dedicate the rest of your, the rest of your time until you get married. Serve God with all your heart. You don't have to run into a marriage and rush because, oh, my life is rushing by. But just dedicate your time. While you're single and you don't have a bunch of responsibility, give all your time you can to God. Give your heart and all that to God. Once you get married, you still have to give all the time in your heart to God that you can. The difference is you also have to take care of a family. That's what that passage is saying. He's not condemning marriage because if he did, Paul would be a heretic because he'd be going against the entire rest of the Bible wherein God instituted marriage and said that marriage was good and he that findeth a wife findeth a good thing and obtaineth the favor of the Lord. Uh, so Paul's not a heretic who's contradicting the Bible. Paul is saying that those who are divorced and re those who are divorced and those who are widows, it's better off for you to go ahead and stay like he is. It's better off for you to be like him and just dedicate the rest of your life to God. That's why the exception he makes even there is unless you're going to burn in lust and you're going to get in sin and ruin your life because your lust is too great and you can't handle just keeping yourself and serving God. So the people he's telling that it's better off to not it's better off for them not to marry and just keep themselves and serve God is not the people who've never been married. It's people who've already been on this one time and they have the rest of their life to choose whether they're going to try to do this again or whether they're going to go serve God. That's the people he's saying that to in the passage. And you pay attention, you'll notice that because he uses the word virgin to describe the people who've never been married. The word unmarried is used to describe the people who were married and are not now uh, divorcees. So I'm saying all that to show you that even when we go through the New Testament, God is not condemning that you marry certain people because, oh, they were married before and their spouse died. Or maybe they meet the certain qualifications for divorce and remarriage. Or, you know, maybe this person messed up and they did some things with their life and they got in some sin. I mean, you think about some of the some of your best Bible characters are people who are deep in sin and God got a hold of their life and changed. Them. I mean, one of the things I hate the most is that we always refer to Rahab as Rahab the harlot. And yes, God does that himself one time in the Bible, but it's just to give you the context of who he's talking about because it's a list of people. But we always define her as Rahab the harlot. Just in case you don't know this, she stopped being a harlot. As soon as she found God, that part of her life passed away. That's not who she was anymore. And not only was Salman perfectly fine, the spy who married her, not only was he perfectly fine to have married her, God let her be part of the lineage of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Uh, God was not against her because she had some brokenness in her life before she knew him. The reason why he's setting these laws for the priests is not because God's against people and won't ever use people and doesn't want people to get married because they messed up. It's because he wants the priests to have the highest standard of purity they can possibly put on their homes. That's why even their children are being told, you represent me whether you want to or not. And he's not even talking to the sons in that verse. 
The sons definitely represent him as part of their heritage to be priest unto God. He says the daughters, like you're not a priest. You, you Theoretically, you can run away from all of this. But you're part of this. You're part of this family. And you represent God whether you like it or not. And so the message in all of this for you, like I had a, I did the same thing this morning. I had a big outline, didn't touch it. I had a big outline for you today. I at least got a few of those verses in there for you so you'd have them. But the point is this. The rule God is making for the Levites and what it means for you is as a child of God, if you're saved, you represent him. Who you marry is going to represent him because you're going to join your body with them. You're going to be one flesh. You marry a harlot, then you're going to represent God with a harlot. You marry a pure person, you'll represent God with a pure person. You marry a lost person, you're going to represent him with half of your body being dead, so to speak. You marry someone who's saved, then you might be able to come forward and represent him as someone who both are saved, both pure, both right, all these kind of things. But you have to consider that. You have to see how important it is who you marry because you're going to be with this person. And you're going to represent Christ with this person. And this person is going to have influence over your children and over your life. And the reason why God cares is because it matters. It matters tremendously. That's why it's a sin for a believer to marry an unbeliever. That's why the priests were not to pick a wife who was unpure for any reason. Because God wanted them to preserve their families pure. You want to know what it was about the women who had been with a man before? Because he didn't want them to bring any children into this who are not Levites, who are not priests, and mess up the lineage of the Levites and the priest. Now, I wanted to make sure you didn't get too far sidetracked before I throw that out there for you. But the reason why God cared if the priest's wife was a woman who had been with other men is because he didn't want there to be any chance that your wife was bringing you a child from another man and messing up the lineage and the heritage of the priest that he was trying to protect so dearly and so preciously. That's why God cared. It wasn't because he was against those people. It's because there was something more important at stake. There was something more important than I love this person or I like this person or I just really want to be with this person. The lineage of those priests was more important to God. Your job, if you bring children in this world, is to train them up in the way they should go. Your job is to take them as arrows in the hand of a mighty man. And you better be very certain that the person you're choosing to do that with is somebody you have confidence is going to point them in the direction God would have them to go, not in the direction of the world. Not somebody who's going to bring philosophies of the world and the ideologies of the world and all this kind of stuff into your home and corrupt your children. You better be dead certain before you commit your life to somebody like that. Because otherwise you're going to break your homes, you're going to break your children, you're going to break all this stuff because you ran after someone you had an emotional connection with, a physical connection with, whatever kind of connection with. You better make sure that when you're married, whoever you're marrying is someone who you can represent Christ together with this person. Body, soul, spirit. You can represent him. It's somebody who you can raise children to represent Christ with this person. Because otherwise you've got no business marrying Otherwise, if you're a child of God, you've got no business marrying somebody who can't help you represent Christ and raise children that are going to represent Christ. Because that's what God expects from you. And if you say, I'm going to marry someone who can't do that, then you're telling God, I, I know this is what you want me to do, but I don't care. Uh, I'm going to go marry the person I want to marry, and I don't care what you say. And that's what you're doing at that point. Because God told you, this is what I expect from your life. Don't marry someone who's going to interfere with that. You have to make the decision. Is following God more important than following your heart? That's the decision everybody has to make. Father, we thank you and praise you, God, for what you do. We pray that you watch over us, help us to serve you. I pray that you'd work in what's been said and done here today, that you speak to the heart of each person. I pray, God, that you help each of us, Lord, to take the right stand for you and for our homes. I thank you, God, for all your blessings and all these things. We ask it of you in your son Jesus' name.
All right, I'm going to ask everyone to stand. I'm going to ask Michelle to close out the live stream. As he's doing that, we're going to sing page 384, Where He Leads Me, I Will Follow. As we sing 384, Where He Leads Me, I Will Follow, I'm going to ask you if God spoke to your heart about anything today. If you're single, you should be at the altar praying and asking God to give you the right spouse. If you're engaged and going to get married, you should be at the altar praying, asking God to bless your marriage and help you and make sure you and your spouse are going the right direction. If you're married and you've got children or don't have children, you should be at the altar praying and asking God to make sure your family and your children go in the right direction. So if there's ever a time for an altar to be full, this is just about it. Uh, so as we sing page 300.